There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews of the CM Group. Greg, it's good to have you back from holidays. It's good to be back. Holidays are always great, but it's also good to get back into the swing of things. So here I am looking forward to it. Here you are. And last week, Greg, while you were absent or having more fun than what we were having, Blair took your spot and was talking about financial planning, having an actionable plan versus just doing a plan. I know that we both have lots of experience in both of those areas. Absolutely. So lately, we've been getting a number of questions from investors about this upcoming U.S. election and if they should make any changes to their portfolio. So this is something we're going to dig into a little bit today. But I should preface this by saying that we're not here to talk about who people should vote for or if Trump's a better candidate than Biden or vice versa. We're just going to talk a little bit about historically what's happened during past presidential elections and what it's meant to markets. And I think some of the information is going to be surprising to a lot of people. So I'll be looking forward to going through the numbers. Exactly. So let's get into it. So educational event today is just on markets and presidential elections. This next one is less than 60 days away. And as I said, there's lots of people are questioning, should they be making any changes to their portfolios in this upcoming election, this upcoming event? Now, keeping in mind when we go through these things, we are going to be looking at past returns. But what's that old saying about past returns, Greg? Not indicative of future returns, maybe? Something like that. Yeah. But you are guaranteed to have a return. Absolutely. <laughs> it might be positive, it might be negative, yeah, that's right. but there will be a return of some sort. Anyway, so what happened during past presidential terms? So I looked at an article from Forbes, and this was put out just in July of this year, 2020. And it ranked from top to bottom the highest stock market returns during each presidential reign. I don't know if reign's the right word, but presidential term, I guess. And who do you think was in office during the highest stock market return, if you had to guess? That's a tough one. Now, this only goes back to, this isn't like the 1800s. This is just like modern day. Guess one. Okay, let's take Obama. Wrong. Okay. Sorry, Obama was second. (laughs) The top return was Bill Clinton, actually 210% on the S&P 500 during his two terms from 1993 to 2001. And who do you think had the worst returning eight-year term, Greg? I'm going to have to say George W. Nailed it. George W. Bush, negative 40% in that same eight-year period. That's a bad number. It's a bad number. A 250% difference? That's pretty substantial. So I was trying to think about, well, what were the major drivers? What was so different between these two terms? Not the election itself, but during their terms. And If you think about during Clinton's days from 1993 to 2001, that would have been probably correlated to the tech market. Definitely. So you had a tech bubble. And if you had George W. Bush come in right after, what happened? 
tech wreck. The tech wreck. So the tech market collapsed. It was followed almost immediately by 9-11. And then he finished his term with the global credit crisis. It was kind of unlucky on the timing there. And when you look at it, it's like, well, did those things happen because there was a Republican president in the office? And when you look at it, it's, of course not. Things during the Clinton period and the tech bubble ran up because of rampant speculation in the technology space. And this was a whole new technology. And so a lot of speculation. And they just unwound. And unfortunately for George W., it would have been just when his presidency was up and running. What is that quote from George W. that he got videotaped? Was it like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice? And then he stumbles and says something like, well, the point is you just can't fool me twice. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember that? I do. (laughs) Well, look, we're not here to make fun of any candidates or any presidents. We're just here to talk about the story. The theme being that being up 210% is much different than being down 40% over an eight-year period on the market. So CNBC posted an article in 2018, and it reviewed the stock market results after Trump's first year in office. And I was curious about this because a lot of people, when they ask the question these days, are asking, well, what's going to happen after the U.S. election? So they're looking very short term. Absolutely. A one-year period would be very short term in the grand scheme of things. So according to the data... Trump's performance, it's not really his performance, it's the performance of the market and the performance of the job market. When you look at the past 12 presidents in office, he actually ranked right in the middle. So there was no outperformance or underperformance. It was, I guess you would call average. And that's surprising because there's been quite a run-up in the markets. But of course, that run-up began in a previous administration under Obama and was, I think, probably juiced a little bit. That's a technical term by the tax reform and the cut to the corporate tax rate that was part of the early Trump years. But overall, again, it was a continuation of the bull market that began in 2009. And a lot of people will take credit for it, of course, maybe even the person that's in that seat right now. But one thing that also I was reading about was this thing called presidential election cycle theory. So the theory states that markets perform best in the second half of a presidential term when the sitting president tries to boost the economy to get reelected. That makes sense. It also says that the election cycle theory is predicated on the view that a shift in presidential priorities is a primary influence on the stock market. I can get behind that a little bit. And that data from the past several decades seems to support the idea of a stock surge during the second half of an election cycle. However, it points out, and this comes from an online source, There is a limited sample size. So like any survey, and I know lots of people talk about surveys, you have to have a proper sample size for the data to actually ring true. So maybe having a sample size of, I don't know, 12 people (laughs) isn't really a big sample size. What reminds me of the old sell in May and go away, which was the theory that stocks perform best in the, I guess, later half of the year or from the late in the year into the early next year. And I think you can point to many years when that happened and many years when it didn't. And in the end, it may or may not have anything to do with reality. It's just random chance. That's that Mark Twain quote, something like, May is one of the most volatile months of the year, followed by April, March, November, December, February, January, July, (laughs) August, et cetera. Exactly. I don't think I got that exactly right, but close enough. 
So Fidelity put out an article in January of this year stating that really it all comes back to fundamentals. And I can get behind this a little bit more that look at George W. Bush's performance. I mean, negative 40% versus Clinton's plus 210%, but very different circumstances in the economy at the time. That's right. So it could just be that the long-term fundamentals are either in favor or out of favor during whoever's sitting in office. That seems to make more sense. If we think about even what's happening right now, when we were talking about this earlier before we started recording, like nobody priced in a global pandemic. How does that factor into who is the president? That's right. That's totally beyond his control. So from a longer term market perspective, the upcoming presidential election actually has very little impact. And this isn't our opinion. Well, it is our opinion, but it's also based on data. We've looked at a ton of data. Now, Dimensional Fund Advisors had a webinar recently, and it showed the annualized market returns during presidential terms, and they ranked them from highest to lowest. The highest annual return in the market for when a president was in office was when Gerald Ford was in office, a Republican. The next highest was Bill Clinton at 17.6% per year. Gerald Ford's was 20% per year. Now, Bill Clinton, of course, is a Democrat followed by Ronald Reagan at 15.9% a year, a Republican, followed by Barack Obama at 15.4% per year, a Democrat, followed by George H. Bush at 13.9% a year, a Republican, and Jimmy Carter at 6.1% per year, a Democrat. So I guess if you wanted to, you said, hey, there's sort of like a, I don't know, this is correlated. It just goes Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat. It does. That's a bit of a pattern that's developing here. This is a random pattern. This is a small sample size, as I said. Now, Donald Trump's performance or the performance of the market during his presidency has been 6.0% per year. So that puts him at seventh. So again, what can you say about that? Well, and I think the answer is you can say that there doesn't seem to be any correlation between whether it's a Democrat or a Republican sitting in the White House. And also keep in mind, There was a lot of Ds on that list. But over the time, going back to Richard Nixon, who took office in 1969, there's been six Republican presidents and only three Democrats. So they're heavily weighted there in the first place. Definitely, there does not seem to be a pattern. No. So another article I looked at was from a company called Asset Builder, and they pointed out that presidents and political parties don't move stocks. Instead, stock returns are affected by several factors to which they talk about that are beyond the president's control, that being business cycles, corporate profits, monetary policy, and stock market valuations. I would argue, though, that the recent corporate tax cuts that were implemented by the Trump administration did, in fact, have a short-term effect on the stock market. I think for sure. What they do talk about is that market valuations might have the biggest weight of all. And they point out the Robert Schiller, I don't know if you say CAPE ratio. Yep. So cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. And all they're trying to point out is that that actually has more measure on where a stock market is going versus whether or not it's a Republican or a Democrat that's in power. That's kind of a lot to take in, Greg, because right now all we have are these headlines about is Biden good enough? Is Trump okay? (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, and sitting here in Canada, it's even a little bit more complex because it's easy to try to make predictions about, okay, well, if Biden is elected, for example, he's already stated his 
opposition to pipeline expansions like the Keystone XL pipeline, which hasn't really done much even since Trump is in power, but there's virtually no chance that that project would go ahead under a Biden presidency. So you can try to make predictions about that, but there's no way to know exactly what would happen. And it's no way to know, to be honest, whether TransCanada has other priorities, which will allow them to just pick up the slack. Oh, you mean TC Energy? TC Energy, I should say. That's right. So no, absolutely. It's just very difficult. And the CAPE ratio is more of a, when you talk about measure of valuations, most people are familiar with the price to earnings valuation, which looks at the current price relative to either the past 12 months earnings or the forward expected earnings estimated by analysts. What the CAPE ratio does is it just looks at kind of normalized earnings over the last 10 years and inflation adjusted. And so it allows you to get a better handle on, well, what is the price relative to average earnings as opposed to this particular year, which might be particularly bad. So if you look at this year, this pandemic year, corporate earnings could be way down. Prices are still high or high-ish. And so the regular PE ratios might seem ridiculously high, whereas the CAPE ratio might seem more in line because you're averaging 10 years of earnings. But that's because the economy like came to a screeching halt. Nothing was being made, shipped, delivered. Exactly. So no sales. That's right. So in fact, if you just looked at PE levels, then prices would seem almost infinitely high against an extremely low level of earnings. So one thing I wanted to talk about is just that there's a lot of focus right now because there's going to be a lot of media attention over the next 60 days on the U.S. election. But I guess we can't forget that there's some other stuff going on in the world today too, like this little pandemic you mentioned, which is still sort of finding its way into everybody's lives. There are still millions of people unemployed. Their businesses are still either not operating or operating at only half capacity. Well, not even half. As I was talking to you earlier, I mean, I ran into a business owner downtown Calgary who runs a, what would you call it, like a dine-in takeout food place. I asked him how business was. He said, well, my revenue's down 97%. So it's kind of hard to imagine what the future looks like with revenue down 97%. And eventually government money runs out. So the questions that investors are asking are not just, okay, well, what if Trump gets reelected? Or what if Biden gets elected? Or what if we don't get a vaccine to address the coronavirus problem and allow businesses to get back to normal operations. What is an investor going to do during times like that? These are very significant questions because you can predict almost anything. And so when we try to approach it, we approach it from the standpoint that markets are going to fluctuate. But what you actually see in the media may actually amplify the significance of a particular event and the expected impact on financial markets. And I think just looking back at what happened over the last six months is an example of that. I mean, we saw, obviously, the economy coming to a screeching halt when pretty much everyone went into lockdown in the middle of March, and the stock market reacted, as you'd expect, by going down about 35% or so from its previous high. Meanwhile, here we are, five or six months later, markets are setting all-time highs, The virus has not been addressed in terms of a vaccine or a dependable treatment. And there's civil unrest in the U.S., lots of noise, obviously, with the election. And here we are. 
So impossible to predict. I don't think anybody six months ago would have predicted that we'd be hitting all-time highs. It just tells you that markets fluctuate and predicting the future of them is very difficult. But recall back in April, you and I were chatting about, this is after the correction in March where the market went down 35%. And April was a very good month, if you recall. I believe, I don't know the number, but it was up significantly. Remember the conversation we had about, isn't it strange that there's actually a high probability that markets get back to all-time highs by the end of the calendar year? Yeah, exactly. And that's what we've seen in all sorts of previous crises. I mean, remember over the last, when you look back to the early 1920s with the Great Depression, a world war, a missile crisis, the arms race, so much nasty stuff was coming and going, and yet the markets always managed to hit new highs or at least rebound from the downturns. So you can never be really sure how a single event is going to impact stock prices. And so you may see some shocks or major events which have an immediate impact on a stock price, like 9-11, for example. That was one of those unpredictable events, and the market reacted predictably, but in the end it did recover. Interestingly enough, this podcast is going to be delivered on September 9th, just two days before 9-11. Ironic. Ironic, yeah. So yeah, there's always going to be events, some of which you might predict and some of which you have no ability to predict. And they may have a short-term impact, but they generally don't have a long-term impact. The other thing to think about is when you react to a crisis by maybe leaving the markets, and hopefully not too many people chose to pull out of the markets back in March, it's really just another form of market timing. And so we've talked about market timing in previous podcasts, Mm -hmm. but really pulling out of the market at a particular time is just making a prediction that something is going to happen and that by doing that, you'll be avoiding. Most people pull out, obviously, to avoid a loss. And so that assumes that their markets are going to keep going down. And typically, the assumption then is that the markets will keep going down and I'll know exactly the right time to get back in. And that requires you to make two correct guesses. And as we've talked previously, it's just very difficult to do. Well, actually, there's been a few times over the last few years where we've had people that when markets have been down, they've said that they're scared and they want to sell out and they want to wait for things to get better and then buy back in. And that sounds a lot like selling low and buying high. Well, that's right, because the only time you feel comfortable enough to get back in is when there's already been a recovery. Now, the other thing, which is really one of the fundamental aspects of investing and capitalism itself, is that dealing with uncertainty that's associated with major events is one of the reasons why investors earn a return over time. So when you think about it, I mean, we always talk about uncertainty as there's no guarantee. We've talked about past results are not a guarantee of future results. There's very few guaranteed returns. Although you are guaranteed to have a return. Exactly. (laughs) So if there was no uncertainty, when you look to future events and their impact on stock prices, investors wouldn't actually deserve to earn a return greater than the risk-free rate, which is the rate you can get on a treasury bill or on a bank deposit. And so it's the uncertainty itself that provides the reason why investors earn return. When markets go down as they did during the early phases of the pandemic, risks increased and the risks were obvious. You could see what the risks were. Well, where everything is shut down, businesses are shut down. So that's a pretty obvious risk. Companies won't be earning anything. Many people are losing their jobs and will stop spending. So that's an obvious risk. Well, of course, 
at the point of the maximum risk is when you have the highest future expected return. And so if we all had the perfect foresight based on what we have current hindsight, is we would know exactly what day we should have bought into the market. March 23rd. Exactly. But because we don't know exactly what that day is, the bottom line is as prices go down and risks increase, then expected returns going forward go up. And that's one of the things that's, that's the hardest to do, but it's the most rewarding over the long time. One of the other things is that responding to the latest news and exiting the market as a way to reduce your anxiety may not actually reduce your anxiety. When you think about it, there's a lot of anxiety around, well, gee, I've got this money now, and if the markets keep going down, I'm going to have 25% less in the future. Well, what happens and what clearly happened this time around is that for anybody who got out, then they've got the anxiety of, well, now the markets are going up and I'm out of it. And I'm not sure when to get back in. What if I get in now and I've already missed all the return on the upside? Actually, Steve and I talked about this. There's the fear of missing out. Yes. But there's also the fear of being in. And both of them are anxious times. Exactly. And we do talk about ways to alleviate the stress of being invested. And we'll kind of summarize with that. But absolutely, the bottom line is the stress doesn't go away necessarily just by being out of the market. And when we talk about, well, what does reduce the stress? It's the next thing, which is proper diversification, prudent investment management, and a goals-based asset allocation that is going to give you the confidence that you can allow you to endure a market downturn. Do you think, though, Greg, that the problem is that that's just not exciting enough for a lot of investors? When we say things like that, like focus on your asset allocation, diversification, stay invested. It definitely sounds like a broken record, I'm sure, to some people. But unfortunately, or fortunately, we know that that's what works over time. And so John Templeton, I think, said the four most dangerous words in the investing are this time it's different. And I think that's just been proven time and time again. And even with the pandemic, it's always interesting to me because when we look back, and I do it myself, we probably all do it. I say, gee, back in January or February, when we knew there was a viral outbreak in China, shouldn't we have known that this was going to find its way across the ocean and hit us in North America mm-hmm. and is already starting up in Europe? Well, of course, I guess we should have known, and that would have us sell everything. But we also didn't know at the time that the federal governments around the world would react with an unprecedented amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus to address that. I mean, you talk about trillions and trillions of dollars in the U.S. alone that were spent both on the fiscal side and the monetary side in order to essentially replace the lost GDP, the economic devastation caused by the pandemic. And so you may predict one thing correctly, but you will never be able to predict all of the elements. And so the only way to deal with that is to start with what are my goals? What do I need to achieve? What is the right asset allocation to achieve that? And something that I can live with through good times and bad. And just go back to the old rules of rebalancing and taking advantage when stocks go down. When you rebalance back to your strategic asset allocation, you're going to be essentially selling high and buying low, which is what we all try to do. Those are three things that we try not to talk about in our household are the terms would have should have, or could have, because you could drive yourself crazy with those. Well, sure. And it's anxiety is absolutely caused to a certain extent by looking forward and 
predicting all of the possible outcomes, none of which may actually be anywhere near what actually happens, but you drive yourself crazy thinking about it. Like the U.S. election right now. Exactly. And like you say, looking back on why didn't I do this? I should have done that. And that's hindsight bias is something that we all have, but you have to be disciplined and try to minimize that and just move forward with what we know has worked historically. Let me give you an example of that. The other day it was like, why did I have that piece of cake? I should have had more salad. I could have lost weight instead of gained weight. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, maybe that'll give you some ideas for the future. <laughs> well, the future is not linked to the past as you were talking about, right? Exactly. By performance. <laughs> so Greg, what have we learned today that we can summarize to our listeners with in regards to specifically a U.S. election in less than 60 days, and the actions that investors can take? Well, I think, as we talked about earlier, it's a matter of getting back to basics. So the first thing is make sure that your financial plan is up to date. Get a good level of understanding of what amount of market risk you really need to take to achieve your goals, and make sure that you're not taking more risk than you need, because risk can go move in both directions. But most of us are concerned with the downside. And so make sure that we only take on the risk we need to to achieve our goals. Let's see. The second thing, obviously, you need to track your results back to the plan because, as we know, market returns are random. And so we can build a plan that has some assumptions about a 4% average rate of return or 5% or whatever it might be. But the one thing we know is that we will never get 4 or 5% year after year for the next 10 to 20 years. No, it's going to look more like what, like plus eight, minus three, plus 12, minus four. Yeah. Very stressful year over year, very consistent probably in the long term. So you need to track the results back to the plan and make adjustments as necessary. You've got to have an asset allocation, as we discussed, that's appropriate for your risk level. If you can't sleep at night because of market downturns of 10% or 15%, then you maybe need to make an adjustment to that because quality of life is fairly important as well. Obviously, we want to be diversified to reduce specific risk. And so people that are running into highly concentrated portfolios of technology names again, which have been the leaders over the last little while, they may get great results, but they may not. And by being more diversified across a globally diversified portfolio will help to reduce that specific risk. And as we always talk about, reducing fees and expenses as much as possible. So the higher your costs, the higher your fees, the less your overall return. And so we want to make sure that we reduce fees, including trading costs from excessive turnover. So a lot of investors these days are being very active, doing a lot of trading, and trading costs can eat into returns fairly substantially. The last thing I would say is do something that brings you joy and happiness, because there's a lot of stuff in the world we can't control, but getting out for a hike, if that's what you enjoy, just spending time with your family, whatever it is, maybe even make going time for, that. for a hike without your family. Well, that, that could work too. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> whatever works. Families have been together like 24 seven for like what, five months. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> or longer. Going for a hike by yourself in the mountains. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, for fun, what are you reading or watching these days? Because I just got back from vacation I did get the chance to finally sit down and read for a change, or at least read non-financial books. And I finished reading A Gentleman in Moscow, which I believe you've read. Well, I gave it to you. Exactly. (laughs) So yeah, I read it. Doesn't mean you read it. You could have a huge library of books you've never read. (laughs) True. Just for Zoom calls. 
It was a great book. It was a very interesting book. And as we've discussed, I mean, it's not the kind of book, if somebody asked you what it was about and you described it to them, they would think, well, that doesn't sound very interesting at all. It was a fascinating book dealing a lot with Russia shortly after the revolution in the early 1900s, 1920s, and highly recommended for anybody. Good. And what about you? Well, I'm actually not reading anything right now, which is strange. I'll have to pick something up shortly, but I have been finishing. It's probably because I've been painting my fence, to be quite honest, and that's taken up a lot of time. And I've been finishing Sons of Anarchy on Netflix, and that show just doesn't want to end. Every time it seems like, okay, this is the final episode, like the the story can't go on from here. No, it does. find a way. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know when it will end, but it looks like soon. I haven't seen the series myself, but I've heard good things about it. So we'll have to put that on the list, depending on how long this pandemic carries on. Oh, I think you'll be able to watch the whole series. So local events right now, I guess, is just kids back in school, just finishing their first full week. There's a lot of betting going on amongst parents these days, and in fact, amongst teachers as well, as to how long school will be opened. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how they do react when the odd case of COVID appears, because I think we can be reasonably certain it's going to. Or even just the odd cold and flu and whatever. It's going to be quite a disruption, I know, at uh, my daughter's school. If you have a cold and if you're tested for COVID and you come back negative, you're still required to stay home until your symptoms pass because anybody else catching a cold then will end up having to go for a COVID test and the cycle will continue. So there will be a lot of absences from school this year and hopefully they have the online capacity to allow these kids to learn while they're home because there's going to be a lot of home time. Well, my son's going into grade 12 and I know he's going to appreciate a lot of those absences. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a whole other story. Well, that works for him. That's just great. Well, listen, thanks for joining us today on The Free Lunch and look forward to having you all back here next time. And feel free to share our podcast with friends and family and colleagues. Greg, we've had some listeners from around the world these days, which has been kind of fun to track. Taiwan, Saudi Arabia, Germany, Poland, etc. It's a little surprising, but yeah. <laughs> be interested in meeting these people. I'm not sure if our advice on RSP maximum contribution limits will apply to Poland, but oh, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, till next time. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.